0: I'm Jake Morecambe.
1: I'm Ellen Liebader.
0: Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet.
1: Today on the show, there's some of the oldest and most treasured pieces of art in our nation's history. So why are we tearing them down? That's coming up later on.
0: But up first, it's something we can't control – They happen when we least expect it, and they can do massive damage to civilization. They've always been around. They killed out the dinosaurs, they completely decimated the city of Pompeii, and they also inspired the Ice Age movies. But in the past 40 years, their frequency has more than tripled, and that's most likely due to us, humans. I'm talking about natural disasters.
2: 1,865 people killed, tens of thousands homeless and many more still unaccounted for tonight after the worst disaster Nepal has seen in nearly a century.
3: Tsunami death toll continues to rise as the real extent of the devastation unfolds.
2: Thousands of people have finally
0: been evacuated from the shattered city of New Orleans a week after Hurricane Katrina struck.
2: We are in the middle of a heat wave here in northern India, the likes of which we haven't seen in nearly two decades, the temperatures hitting
0: nearly 120 degrees and still despite that. When a natural disaster happens, it's hard to not hear about it. Normally, all the news stations are flooded with to-the-minute updates. The death toll is rising, it's not over yet, how will they rebuild? A disaster is defined as a sudden accident or a natural catastrophe that causes great damage or loss of life. So obviously, we have the right to know what's going on. What if you have family where the disaster has hit? How long is it going to be until it's over? It's funny how strongly the dates of natural disasters can stick in your mind. I remember sitting down for dinner with my mum and sister on the night of February 7, back in 2009. This was when the nation heard the first breaking news announcements of the Black Saturday bushfires.
2: Already, the confirmed death toll stands at 36, and it's expected to climb much higher. Police say six people have died at King Lake and another six at King Lake West.
0: Looking back, this was a really scary moment, because over the next couple of months, it would unfold to be one of the worst natural disasters to hit Australia ever. What made it even weirder was that it was also my sister's birthday on the same day. Disasters can be hard to forget. But what happens to those who are forgotten when disaster strikes?
3: You might not think this, but following the Indian Ocean tsunami in two thousand and four people started to talk about tsunami marriages.
0: This is Gabrielle' sim. Gabrielle recently spoke at a conference in New Orleans about gender and natural disaster and how women are left worse off than men when disaster strikes.
3: Maybe the mother of a family was killed and the father is left with a lot of children to look after and He's thinking partly about making his daughter safe, and girls are often perceived to be safer when they're married, and partly that's one less mouth to
0: feed. This is just one example, and you'll hear from Gabrielle throughout this story. But before we untangle this issue further, how many people are affected by disaster?
2: At the end of 2015, there were 60 million people affected by conflict and about 109 million people affected by natural disasters.
0: This is Angela Dawson from the University of Technology, Sydney.
2: I'm a Senior Lecturer here in the Faculty of Health.
0: Angela also does a lot of work in this area of women and disaster.
2: Women and children are an extremely vulnerable group in the sense that they're at greater risk of violence, sexual violence.
0: This is particularly common in places like disaster relief camps. Gabrielle Sims says the same.
3: People wouldn't go to the shelter because they saw it as more dangerous than staying home. They were at more greater risk of sexual assault, different types of violence in the shelter than they were in their own house.
0: And this leads to other complications. Back to Angela.
2: But also women still require family planning and contraception in such crises.
0: Access to contraception and proper reproductive health care, Angela says, is a crucial part of disaster relief for women. She talks about a group called the Interagency Working Group on Reproductive Health and Humanitarian Crises and says that two decades ago they put together a manual for field workers who help women in disaster. The manual calls for... Uh,
2: Attention to maternal and neonatal health.
0: Neonatal meaning newborn babies.
2: So clean delivery kits, for example, and skilling people to deal with neonatal resuscitation. Rape and violence are part of that initial package, so things such as post-exposure prophylactics for people who may have been exposed to HIV, emergency contraception to obviously prevent pregnancy in those cases, and counselling.
0: A lot of the time, reproductive health care in disaster is pushed aside because for most, their first priority is to stay alive.
2: Yes, so we always have the priority issue. Syria, for example, it's just very difficult to get things out, not just condoms and contraception, but food. So these supply issues concern all aspects of humanitarian response.
0: And sometimes certain countries don't want that type of care
2: during Typhoon Yolanda in the Philippines in 2015 when 6,000 people died. The Philippines is a country where the church is very prominent, the Roman Catholic Church, and contraception or family planning and contraception, although they are great programs, emergency contraception is seen as an abortifacent, not part of the contraceptive group. So the UNFPA Reproductive Health Kits, must be changed before the kits leave. All the emergency contraception has to be removed from those kits which is um, highly problematic because of course it prevents women who may have been raped to have a second chance to prevent a pregnancy or those who in fact are in the situation where their contraception has failed.
0: And what about women who experience an unwanted pregnancy
2: The provision of safe abortion saves lives, millions of lives a year. So America, for example, its overseas development aid funding for abortion is completely excluded. So that puts packages such as the MISP.
0: MISP is the minimum initial service package, which is a response to reproductive health needs in disaster crises
2: at risk of resourcing because family planning is something that America is very strong at and and strongly supports. But when abortion is part of the picture, USAID will not, not fund those programs. So not only at the country level, but also at the donor level, abortion faces a great challenge. Angela
0: goes on to say that abortion is one of the biggest issues at play here, because you don't want women giving birth into a disaster environment. Also, birthing facilities might be damaged, inaccessible, or there might be no one around who's competent to help women who do give birth. But on the other side, Gabrielle Sim from earlier says children play an important role in disaster response.
3: There's a Safer Schools program in ASEAN where they're using children as the educators for their parents. So teaching children makes sense in terms of them being able to look after themselves. But through children, educational programs can reach their parents so that they can educate mum and dad about how to be safer next time.
0: As school continues, a sense of normalcy.
3: Schools are often designated to be the disaster shelter so when a whole lot of people get evacuated to school, the lessons can't run and the children miss out on schooling and that can really disrupt their education. So there's been a big emphasis recently on getting children back into school. So even though there's chaos around them and mum and dad might not have a home and they're still scrambling to get food or find a job, at least the kids are in school and they feel safe there and they feel like there's a bit of their life that's normal.
0: When Gabrielle and I were talking about this idea of normalcy and disaster, it opened up another really interesting question. In the general societal discussion about gender, it most commonly comes back to women. But what if that gender gap in disaster goes beyond women? You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER, and we're talking about gender and disaster. Now, if you've just joined us, I'll do a little backstepping for you. Natural disasters have always been around, but from 1980 to today, there's been nearly an 80% increase in the number of climate-related disasters. When they hit, whether it be an earthquake, a flood, a hurricane... Women are often left on the fringes of care, particularly in terms of reproductive health. And evidently, there's a massive gap in the proximity of care and social treatment between the sexes. But we're talking about gender. And gender doesn't indicate just women.
3: There's another group that we haven't mentioned, and that's uh, the transgender community.
0: This is Gabrielle Simigan, and if you've forgotten who she is, she's our international law expert, and she spoke at a gender and disaster conference earlier this year. So I'll let her take over from here.
3: Um, there is actually one example of the Nepal earthquake last year where transgender people, known as the third sex in, in India and Nepal, there was actually a, a legal reform undertaken where they could be recognised on citizenship certificates but the law is not being implemented in practice so those people who for example might lose their their house in an earthquake they can't prove that they own it because they can't get citizenship certificate that shows that they need to get their their house title and in some countries the deaths of transgender people aren't being recorded in the official statistics. I know that some people have been excluded from shelters. Uh, for example, sex workers have been excluded from shelters in Bangladesh. And I mean, perhaps some of those were trans sex workers. But it's really an area that needs a lot more research. And it's something that I've been trying to find out more about because I think it's important. There's also this tendency in international law, generally to say gender equals women. And so whenever people say gender, they actually mean women. Whereas I think it's important to say gender is not just about women. It's also about men. It's about transgender people. And that if we really are serious about looking at gender, that we need to not see it in terms of a binary. And we also need to take into account how gender affects international law in in lots of different ways.
0: So how how would being a transgender person come into international law in this situation?
3: Well, the two ways in which people propose to deal with gender and disaster I think are actually about women. So the first one is to look at it through the Women's Convention, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and the second one is to use a model of women, peace and security through the Security Council, that Women, Peace and Security agenda at the Security Council has been criticised as being actually having a very simplistic idea about women and it sort of lets men off the hook in that the focus is all on women. For example, Laura Shepard, who's an academic at UNSW, she said, well, we actually need a Men, Peace and Security agenda and um, Jamie Hagen has written a piece criticising the Women Peace and Security Agenda from a queer perspective. So to to think more about how using this focus on women excludes groups. So uh, that's one way in which it's come up in the critiques of what is happening at the UN. But you're right in that it's it's very difficult for most people to think about how. Gender sexuality is relevant at an international level. There are the Jakarta Principles on sexuality, which are sort of non-binding human rights principles, but it's it's something that is being taken notice of more and more at an international level. And I think it's important that we connect things like sexuality and gender to issues like disaster where people might think, well, how is sexuality or gender, how is it relevant to a cyclone or an earthquake? Well, it is actually because disasters exacerbate existing inequalities and existing discrimination and biases.
0: Because you'd even mentioned if there were certain transgender people who'd been not allowed to come into a certain disaster relief area, Mm. then where would they go or what other support would they have or where else could they find it when things kind of die down or when it begins again?
3: That's right. And, I mean, the, the starkest for me you, you think, well, these people are being shut out and there's a cyclone out there and millions of people have been killed in cyclones in Bangladesh. So that that, that is pretty serious exclusion there. But you can see the exclusion is happening. It's on an ongoing basis, but we, we just see it most starkly at that point. But if people can't get registered, they can't get a certificate that shows they're a citizen if they can't register for disaster relief if they're not even recognized as a person so they can't they can't show access or a title to their house you know that's that's going on all the time and it's it's brought out most starkly when their death isn't even recorded as a death in the official statistics
0: And this is dependent, obviously, on different countries or or where different natural disasters occur. Do you, uh, just perhaps an example, in the United States, it might be different from what happens in a Southeast Asian country. Do you know of any relief centres which provide specifically for those within the queer community?
3: I'm not aware of particular Centers. Um, I think there are some programs I've seen mentioned in a Red Cross report. A program specifically targeting certain groups, and they might be catered to by a particular program. But I'm not aware of like a physical space. This is this is for queer people.
0: So, what are some of these programs?
3: It's more sort of outreach, making sure that people have access to aid, they have access to information. I mean, after disasters, there are a lot of livelihood programs where you're trying to get people back to work. And if I use the example of Cyclone Nagus in Myanmar in 2008, a lot of fisher people lost their boat, they lost their fishing net. So you come along, you, you give them a boat, you give them a fishing net. But if you've got trans people being excluded from livelihoods, apart from really marginalized ones, such as sex work, then... I guess there's a problem for the aid community. What do we actually give them? How do we get them back on their feet economically? How do we get them working again when they were excluded from that before the disaster? So I think it's a a challenge for the humanitarian response.
1: Gabrielle Sim, Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. So, Jake, this is actually my last show for a little while before I head off to Europe for a holiday.
0: drop but you're flying again. Like you were driving through Sydney Harbour <laughs> Tunnel last week, like throwing your beer cans <laughs> yeah. into some ditch when For you went to Tasmania. You're making me out into a
1: sustainable monster. Sustainable
0: fiend. <laughs> but yeah, so you've been to Europe before though,
1: Yeah, you? yeah. This is, um, this is about my third time over there now. And the thing that really appeals to me about Europe is the way that everywhere you go, there is just so much history. Mm. Last time I was in Croatia and I was absolutely blown away um by the city walls in Dubrovnik, which have been around since about the 12th or 14th century. Wow! And in Australia, you know, we have our Aboriginal Australians who have artwork and artefacts that have been around for centuries, but I feel like we really hide that.
0: I don't feel like we hide it. I feel most of it is completely shirked over or destroyed. Yeah. For for example, our Indigenous rock art, because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the oldest living culture on earth and their rock art is a physical embodiment of their history, which is just being essentially destroyed.
1: And Aboriginal rock art is important because Aboriginal people use rock art as a way to tell stories. You know, they had a very oral tradition and these stories were an important way to pass on information about what food to eat, who to marry and what the environment is like.
0: But because of changing climate conditions and more and more developments popping up on Aboriginal land, stories and histories are being lost. To tell us more is Judith Hugo from Friends of
4: Australian Rock Art. We have archaeologists from around the world who are absolutely amazed that industry is there. UNESCO has said that they would grant us World Heritage Listing tomorrow if our government would just... Put it forward, but that's what we keep knocking on the door for them to do. It's World Heritage Listing, which would be the ultimate awareness.
0: What is Friends of
4: Australian Rock Art? A non profit organisation who started 10 years ago now, we're in our 10th year, to help to preserve the rock art on the Barrack Peninsula, which is in Western Australia, just out of Parasa. It's the largest and the oldest rock art gallery in the world, it's been currently estimated to be about 52,000 years old, so it actually is far older than the pyramids and Stonehenge. But unfortunately, on the Borough Peninsula, the government also decided in the 60s that there was a wonderful natural deep harbour and it would be an ideal place for industry to um, send all their wares overseas from. So we have all the iron ore trains coming across and loading. It's probably the worst (coughs) scenario really for this ancient rock art. All the sulfuric and and nitric acids of course are acid rain and they come down and eat into the surface of the rock art. If that weren't Bad enough, they've now approved an ammonium nitrate plant right next to the present ammonia plant. And this, when it gets finally commissioned, will emit 25.2 million tonnes a year of ammonium nitrate particles. This means that land which is traditionally the most arid continent of the world will just have a a spray every day of fertiliser drifting down. All these little microbes will just grow into the rock art and eradicate all the carvings.
0: What does it look like now?
4: Well, apparently there's some quite drastic changes in the coloration of the rocks due to these um, toxic emissions. When the next um, plant, this ammonium nitrate plant, which is really a Monty Python scenario really because they are traditionally um, known for having explosions and leakages of ammonia and all sorts of things and they're having quite a few problems before they get started up. Um, And that will also change the colour and eventually because it's um, a, a relief phenomenon because they carve into the rock and what stands proud is actually the image that you see. So that's gradually going to be eroded and and, um, it'll be indiscernible within a few years. And the sadness is it's been there for over 50,000 years and yet industry is only there for 20 years. It comes, it makes a lot of money, leaves a lot of damage and moves away again. And this is really an absolute travesty. We've been coming over to Canberra and speaking to ministers for, for a number of years. So we hope finally sense will prevail. The
0: main issue in the Burrup area is development, but around Australia you hear so many stories of Indigenous rock art being graffitied on or, or, or and all these other things. What are some of the other pressing issues for our Indigenous rock art?
4: Yes, graffiti is one of them, and particularly up on the Burrup, it's an industrial area, so there are a lot of workers, a lot of FIFO workers up there and they go out at weekends and their four-wheel drives and to the fishing spots which are of many and varied unfortunately being ignorant and not really educated about the value of this rock art they have been putting graffiti on the rock um fortunately the rangers now are very very um, conscientious about checking it out and They have some methods of of partly removing it, but not entirely. But that is one of the sources. But we think it might be halting because with education, and we do um, press upon the, the industries there to educate their workers to not do it. They're hefty fines, but once it's done, it's done.
0: In your lobbying, what is the main goal here?
4: We're actually trying to stop further industry from developing because there still are some sites that are zoned for industry and that's what we really want the government, the West Australian government, to commit to, to not letting those be utilised by industry. And it's the only continuous record of mankind's development from before the last ice age until after it. So you get a combination of images. Before the last ice age, they're mostly a land mammal um, and then when the waters came back in, you get a lot of marine life depicted on the rocks. Um, so it's it's the longest continuous record of mankind's development in the world. Things like the Lascaux Caves were only an incident at just a particular period, and Stonehenge and, and um, the pyramids likewise were just incidents on the sort of scale of mankind's development, but ours is continuous over these Fifty plus thousand years. We have a lot of archaeologists out there um, recording it, and, and um, but we just need government to to wake up and, and do something responsible about it.
0: How did you get involved, or how, how did you become part of Friends of Australian Rock Art?
4: Well, I'm originally from Africa, and I've been here for about forty years now, and I'm just sad that I didn't get. Involved or more knowledgeable about African art because that really was quite splendid. Um, so when I came here, it just seemed natural. I felt Australian immediately and I, I really was looking for something to, to get involved with in terms of preserving the history and this amazing precinct, really.
1: Judith Hugo from Friends of Australian Rock Art. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER.
0: For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, which is 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability.
1: You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability.
0: I'm Jake Malcolm. I'm
1: Ellen Vita.
0: See you next week.